Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. I don't care much about baseball. I grew up in a Mets household, and I guess living in Baltimore now, I should have strong opinions about the Orioles, but you know, I don't really. But I do love stories about baseball. I'm talking everything from Angels in the Outfield to that book, The Art of Fielding, to that one Ernest Hemingway short story where the two dudes talk about baseball so they don't have to talk about feeling sad. <laughs> in a bit, we'll hear from Ron Shelton, the writer and director of one of the all-time baseball movies, Bull Durham. But first, the reality of being a baseball star is that everyone is looking at you. I imagine especially if you're a pitcher, like CC Sabathia was. Which can be nice, sure, but those eyes made it hard for Sabathia to ask for help to deal with his drinking. He wrote about his alcoholism in a memoir published last year titled Till the End, and he talked to NPR Scott Simon about what it took for him to finally get sober. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox. Discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. C.C. Sabathia had a renowned baseball career, six-time All-Star, who won titles and championships with the New York Yankees, Cleveland, and the Milwaukee Brewers and the all-time left-handed American League leader in strikeouts. But even during some of his best days, C.C. Sabathia also used to sometimes drink himself into a stupor, and pass out, drunk and naked. He tells the story of some of his best and lowest moments in the new book, Till the End. His co-author is Chris Smith. C.C. Sabathia joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us, sir. Oh, no problem. First sentence of your book, you call yourself a weird alcoholic. How, how so, sir? Just because, uh, you know, I could detox myself. I could go, you know, a couple of days drinking and, you know, I could take two days off and be able to pitch. And then I would start it all over. So I had a, a pretty good cycle going. So that's why I say it was weird. Yeah. Well, we want to talk about that. But I, I, I also want to talk about baseball and, and, and other aspects of your life. Because you, you were marked for athletic success at an early age. For all the blessings that's given you in life, was was it a hard way to grow up sometimes? Uh, no, not really. I mean, that's that's what I wanted to do. You know, that was always my dream was to play sports. And the expectation, you know, it came from the outside, obviously. But a lot of the expectations came with, from within. You know, there was never any more pressure um, anybody can put on me than, than I put on myself. Yeah. You trash-talked an imaginary friend when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had imaginary friends. So I grew up an only child, and I did a lot of different things that, that people didn't want to do. You know, like I, I wanted to play baseball all the time. Yeah. Everything was about sports. Um, and a lot of my cousins, you know, didn't want to do that. So I had to make up somebody to play with. Um, I got to tell you, one of the most memorable characters in the book is your, is your high school coach, Coach Hobbs. Mm -hmm. Can I get you to talk about him? Yeah. Coach Hobbs, you know, I got a chance to meet him at 14 years old, and it just really changed my life. He was a, a guy that just really took an interest in, in me and my friends and my friend group, and he had such a huge impact on not just me, but all of us. Mm. And he told you about Jackie Robinson. 
yeah, he was the one that I would, that would always stress to me about Jackie Robinson, um, different guys in the Negro Leagues or, or just guys that I should know. Being a black baseball player, he was always telling me that, that I'm going to need to know these players and know these things. And so he was the one that really started me um, to learn about the Negro Leagues. When you are so famous and so many people expect things of you and see you as a figure of strength, is it hard to ask for help? Uh, you know what? It, it, it was just scary to ask for help, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Just not knowing what the help would look like. You know, I mean, I think I knew I needed help. I just didn't know if that was going to be taking time away from the team, how public that would be. So that was things that I was thinking about a couple of years leading up to me going to rehab. You know, by the time that I actually checked myself in, I was just tired. I didn't care what anybody thought, what it looked like or any of that. I was just trying to get myself right. In 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 rehab, you were asked to write a letter to someone in your life. And you took a tough assignment and made it tougher. Can you tell us about that letter you wrote to your son, whom you call Little C? Yeah, so um, in the first couple of weeks of rehab, we had an assignment to write a letter to a person that, that you miss, you know, from alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I was writing a letter um, as Little C, you know, writing to me. And I got halfway through the letter and I figure out it's me writing a letter to my dad. You know, about all the things that I missed about him and, you know, all the things that he's missed out on and, you know, our relationship. So that's what kind of like snapped me out of everything. It was, you know, it just like a like a light bulb went off and I got a chance to, you know, say everything that I needed to say to my dad because I didn't never really get a chance to mourn. And once I, you know, got that off my chest, I feel like in rehab, you know, I was able to just think clearly and uh, felt like I had a good chance of staying sober. We should explain your your father would disappear and come back in your life. Yeah, yeah. My, my parents got divorced when I was 12. Um, and then my dad left. And I think when I was 14 to 17, we probably saw each other two or three times in that time. How are you doing today, Mr. Sabathia? I'm good today. I get a chance to hang out with my kids. Um, you know, my daughters are dancers. My, you know, my, my little son plays baseball. So, you know, to get a chance to be able to be dad and hang out at home, it's a lot of fun and, and to be able to do it sober and, you know, with a clear mind is, is great. There are people hearing us today who, uh, who might be in trouble with uh, drink the way you were. What should they know? Um, I think that, you know, everybody rock bottom is different. You know, you don't have to, you know, have a DUI or court ordered or whatever. You know, you could just literally be tired of being alcohol dependent to go get help. And I think the, the hardest thing about facing alcohol addiction or dependency is saying that you can't, you know, fight this thing along. And once you do that, um, you know, there are so many different avenues to help you out. But you got to do it, right? You've got to decide to do it. Yeah, there's there's people that can talk you through it, but there's nobody that can do the work. You know, you have to do the work yourself, for sure. C.C. Sabathia, his book, Till the End. Thanks so much for being with us, sir. Oh, no problem. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle, find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Okay, obviously Scott Simon is the big baseball head in the NPR family. In this next interview, he talked to Ron Shelton, writer and director of Bull Durham, who just wrote his own memoir titled The Church of Baseball. And listen, even if you don't care about Bull Durham or baseball or whatever, there's something endearing about hearing Scott act like a 15-year-old BTS fan when he's talking to Shelton. Just give it a listen. Anytime anybody asks what's the greatest baseball movie of all time, chances are you'll hear Bull Durham. I was in the show for 21 days once. <laughs> 21 greatest days of my life. You know, you never handle your luggage in the show. Somebody else carries your bags. It's great. You hit white balls for batting practice. Ballparks are like cathedrals. The hotels all have room service. Women all have long legs and brains. (laughs) Ron Shelton's 1988 rom-com coming of age and nearing middle-aged film focused on a minor league baseball team. Kevin Costner, the aging catcher, Crash Davis, brought into tutor Nuke Lelouch, played by Tim Robbins, the young phenom with a million-dollar arm and a five-cent head. They become two points of a triangle with Susan Sarandon's Annie Savoy, the poetry-spouting fan who tutors a new rookie each season. Ron Shelton, a former minor leaguer himself, of course, wrote and directed the film I Won't Diminish by calling it a classic, and he now has a memoir about its making, The Church of Baseball. Ron Shelton joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Scott, I'm just happy to be here. Hope I can help the ball club. <laughs> One of the great cliches that Crash Davis uh, tutored young Nuke Lelouch and how to say that. Help us appreciate how hard to sell Bull Durham was because uh, producers often don't hear, oh, a baseball movie, great, that'll make zillions. Baseball movies uh, are very difficult to get off the ground because there's no foreign sales for them. In the marketplace of movie making, you need to sell foreign tickets. And people say, well, Japan, but Japan only buys a movie after it's a hit. Venezuela's not much of a market. They're really, it's got to work in the States or it won't work at all. Why did you set the story among minor leaguers? Was that strategic? Write what you know, (laughs) you know. I mean, that was my life. and I, I think it's a lot more interesting to get, to follow people trying to get into the spotlight than most of them are once they get into the spotlight. There's just more drama more heartache, uh, more pathos in Class A ball than in the major leagues staying at five-star hotels. Yeah. Uh, One of the um, drawbacks of making a convincing baseball film, and you write about this in The Church of Baseball, is that some of the best actors don't look like they're convincing when they actually have to do something on the field. No, I I didn't like sports movies my whole life for two reasons. One is it was clear the actor couldn't play. And two, somebody would also always hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning, usually with the bases loaded to win the World Series. And that just never happened. It happened once, 1960, Bill Mazeroski, but go ahead, yeah. Yes, it's almost unheard of. Games end with ground balls to short, like life. You know, a pop-up to second, game over. So it was very important to me to make a movie about what life is really like in the minors, which is more like what life is like anywhere, doing anything. Tell us about the audition process. Kevin Costner kept a mittenness in his car? Well, Kevin was about to become a star. He hadn't quite made it yet, but I heard he was a great athlete. And I met with him and he liked the script and he said he wanted to do it. And I said, you've got it. The part is yours. He says, but first I have to try out for you. And I said, you've already got the part. 
And he insisted that we go out to Sepulveda Boulevard in L.A., where there's a batting cage for a quarter and miniature golf courses and video arcades. And we went out there and we played catch in the parking lot. And then we started putting quarters in the machine and he had line drives right-handed. And then he hit line drives left-handed. And I went to a payphone because this was before there were alternatives and called the studio and said, hire this guy. He's unbelievable. Yeah. There is a Crash Davis or was a Crash Davis out there in the world. Yeah. I talk about this in the book. I, I actually find a p- solace from reading old record books for some reason. And mm-hmm. uh, before I ever wrote the script, I was looking at the Carolina League record book, which goes back 100 years, more than 100 years now. And I saw that in 1947 or something, a guy named Crash Davis hit 50 doubles for the Durham Bulls. And I thought Crash Davis is the coolest name ever. I wish that was my name. And uh, I hit a lot of doubles. That was the kind of ball player I was. I wasn't a power hitter. And so I he became the name of my character before I'd written him. And then on the first day of sh- shooting, a guy named Crash Davis, the real Crash Davis, shows up. So not only was he not long gone, he was still living in Durham. He was beautifully dressed. Yeah, he was a, he was a real corporate executive, wasn't he? And he'd been a Duke graduate who played for yeah. Connie Mack in the majors. And then he'd served in the war. I mean, this guy was a hero. And then because he was in his 30s, he wanted to play a little bit more. So he played two or three more years with the Durham Bulls just because he loved it in Durham. And that's where I found his name. And we became good friends. And he went on a a speaking circuit thereafter called I'm the Real Crash Davis. Crash Davis gives a famous speech in the film. And you write in this book about when you're writing a script, the importance of a good speech to attract a name actor. Could you tell us the thinking that goes on? Well, it's that's fairly mercenary and uh, uh, Machiavellian. But yeah, I mean, stars need good speeches and they need words to say that they can identify with and know that they can hit out of the park. And I thought I better give this guy a great speech early on. And I wrote the I Believe in Speech. And I wrote it about about as fast as I can type. I won't quote it here because this is a family show. But um, Oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do oh, this speech. You can do it. And Kevin liked it. And I always thought it was a bit overdone, overwritten, self-conscious, but we did it in one take and he did it so casually that it didn't underline itself. It didn't point at itself. I would like to audition for you, Mr. Shelton. Go ahead. Do we go to the batting cage or what do we do here? Uh, No, no, I am going to do Crash Davis's speech. Okay. Uh, I believe in the soul, the something I can't say on the radio. The, another thing I can't say on the radio the small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, that the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, overrated crap. I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter. I believe in the sweet spot, opening your presents Christmas morning rather than Christmas Eve. And I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days. Good night. Hire this guy. Fabulous. <laughs> we'll go on the senior circuit and do it. <laughs> That's not exactly the answer I was looking for, but all right. Thank you. Um, is Bull Durham ultimately a baseball movie? I think baseball's the background. It's really about a reckoning, people coming in a part of their lives where they have to make hard choices. Crash, as I say in the book, it's about a guy who loves something more than it loves him back, and I think that's universal and resonates with people yeah. outside of baseball. Yeah. I think that's why the movie may 
still work for people. Ron Shelton, his memoir, The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. My pleasure. And uh, I'm sorry about the Cubs. I don't know what else to say. Well, I've been hearing that for most of my life, with the exception of uh, 2016, but it's a way of life. What can I tell you? Yes, I will keep reading. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Miranda Mazariegos and Nina Rao with help from Mason Tran and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show Elements for this week were produced and edited by Michael Levitt, Justine Kennan, Liam McBain, Jessica Mendoza, Ann Bior, Ashley Brown, Daniel Hensel, Hadila Alsalchi, Jan Stewart, Samantha Balaban, and Ed McNulty. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.